Love is a big deal in our culture. Just think about the songs we listen to, right? The Beatles tell us, love is all you need. On the other hand, Robert Palmer says, love is probably kind of addiction that you need to be healed from. Whitney Houston promises that she will always love you. The Backstreet Boys don't care who you are or where you're from, as long as you love them. And Olivia Rodrigo got her driver's license because of love, though it didn't quite work out for her. But by the way, how many, how many of you knew all the songs? Yeah, very few, exactly, because this is part of our multi-generational distinctive. <laughs> okay, that's intentional. So, but but, but my, my point is this, love is a big deal in our culture, and, but also in the Bible. Just two passages, okay, just kind of Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, right out of that great Jewish prayer, the Shema, it says, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. Big, big, important verse in the Old Testament. And the New Testament, Jesus comes along and says, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. <laughs> love is a big deal in our culture. Love is a big deal in the Bible. And now it gets tricky. Because here's the thing. There's some things in the Bible that contradicts the culture. Following them is hard, right? We have to follow Jesus, not the culture. Following them is hard, but at least it's clear. The difference is plain to see. But there are some things in the Bible that sounds like the culture, and it's easy to get them confused. Today, we're talking about love. And the Bible celebrates love, the culture celebrates love. And they're not talking about the same thing. And that's what we're getting into today. This is our second Sunday in our series called uh, On the Book of Philippians. Last week, Pastor Matt introduced the whole series. He, uh, he gave us a history of Paul and his history with the church at Philippi that he founded. And then he did something absolutely amazing, okay? He read the entire book of Philippians, 15 minutes. He read it to us. And we just sat there and we listened. We experienced Philippians the way the first century Philippians would have done it. They would have sat there and heard the passage. It's a great experience if you, if, if you missed it. Check it out online. That was last week. So today we start with the very beginning, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bible or a smart device where you do your, your, your scripture, your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 11. Um, verses 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus of Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Opening verses of the letter, Paul says, hey, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. I've been given the mission to plant churches all around the Roman Empire. And now I'm in jail. I'm in the city of Rome, and I'm writing to a church that I planted in Philippi. Now, these two verses are just loaded. I mean, seriously, I can do a sermon on each verse, but then we'll be in Philippines till 2025. <laughs> so I'm just going to focus on one phrase today. The phrase is this, okay? Paul calls the Christ followers in Philippi, he calls them God's holy people in Christ Jesus. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Well, here's our problem, right? We 21st century Americans, we don't know what the word holy means. We think, we think about a holy person. We think maybe somebody who you know, never does anything wrong, right? They are super spiritual, Maybe like a guru living off the mountain somewhere. When you do find them, you know, they look at you with these deep penetrating eyes, speak very slowly, 
but everything they say is oh so profound, right? That's a, that's a holy person, right? That's a holy person. Of course, we also have the phrase holier than thou, which means they never do anything wrong and they're a little judgy. <laughs> okay, so let me make this clear. That is not what the Bible means by holy, okay? Holy does not mean you never do anything wrong. It does not mean you're super spiritual. And it certainly does not mean that everything you say is profound, okay? So what does holy mean in the Bible? Let me see if I can illustrate. So let's say I'm, I'm, I'm late to a, an appointment at doc, my doctor's office. And it's like, I, you know, I drive to the clinic and oh my gosh, the entire parking lot is completely jammed. I, I'm going to be late. I'm going to miss the appointment. They're going to cancel it and reschedule me for three months. Ah, so I see an empty spot. Oh my gosh, there's an empty spot right in, front of, right, right in the front of the clinic. So I gun the car over there. Don't judge me, I drive fast. Okay, I gun it over there, and just as about, I'm about to pull into that parking space, I see the sign. <laughs> ah! I can't park here. I will never be able to park here. <laughs> the space is reserved for expectant mothers. The space is reserved for a very particular group of people. Well, the word holy in the Bible refers to things that are reserved for one particular person. Reserved for God. So, so let's say we put up this particular sign out there in the parking space for Blackhawk and, and a question for your community group discussion. Uh, do we reserve three spaces or one? <laughs> you guys laughed. <laughs> Trinity jokes work here, folks. Yes! <laughs> I was anticipating and not working. Okay, I just, wow, okay. But this parking space is reserved for the use of God, which means this parking space is holy. All right? So what does Paul mean when he calls the Philippians God's holy people? Well, it means that the Philippians are reserved for God's use. Now, we know from the story of the Bible that God is, is, is doing something in our world. He's coming in to establish his realm, to restore, to, to remake the world and, and heal it from brokenness, from sin, from death, from violence, from exploitation, from injustice. And what he's doing is he's using a group of people to do it with him. That group is designated for God's use. That's God's holy people. Now, how do the Philippians become God's holy people? In Christ Jesus. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, what he did was he created this, this space where people who believe in him, who put their faith in him, can join him and become united with him and become in Christ Jesus. So the Philippians, right, they, 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 they trust Jesus. They, they pledge allegiance to him as king. And as a result, they're united with Jesus spiritually. They're now in Christ. As a result, their sins are forgiven. And the Holy Spirit is now, is now surrounding them at work with them to transform their lives. And because they're in Christ, they're God's holy people. Designated, dedicated for God's use. Now here's the thing. What Paul calls the Philippians is true for every single Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower, if you have made the decision to follow Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you 
are in Christ Jesus. You are united with him spiritually. Your sins are forgiven, and the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and around you to help transform your life. And as a result, you are holy. Not that you're super spiritual, not that you've done everything right, not that everything you say is profound, and certainly not holier than thou. Don't be judgy. But you are holy. Big idea, first big idea for the, for the, for the talk, you are holy. So time for a little audience participation. I'm going to ask all of you here, everybody, all the sites and venues, podcast, listening to podcasts, watching online, I want you to say it with me, okay? Say, I am holy with me, okay? So we're going to do this together, loud and proud. Okay, ready? All right. I am holy. Good. Now turn to the people next to you, both sides, and say to them, you are holy. Go do that right now. How did that feel? Weird, right? Feels really weird. Really weird. But it's true. It's always weird when we are figuring out who we are, our true identity. When we're switching identity, we're adopting one that we know is true. It always feels weird. But this is who we are. We have to know this about ourselves. We are holy people, reserved for God's use because we're in Christ. God wants to use us, and we need to know that about ourselves. You are holy. And Paul starts off this way with the Philippians because that lays the foundation for what he wants to talk about next. He's going to talk about two things. One, the relationship within God's holy people, and then how do God's holy people actually love? So relationship and love. Let's start with the relationship. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What Paul is describing here is an amazing relationship. Every time he thinks about the Philippians, he thanks God. How many people do you have that like, like that in your life? Think of somebody? Oh, thank God. He, he has that relationship with them. And more than that, he, he, every time he prays for them, he prays with joy. He's like, I'm so happy. Every time I pray, I'm happy, happy, happy when I pray for them. This is an amazing relationship. Why? What is the basis of this relationship? Partnership. The basis of the relationship is partnership. Paul says, I know you guys, right? I, I've known you from first day until now. We are friends. But more than friends, we are partners. What's the difference between partners and friends? Partners are friends with a shared mission. They're working on a project together. And what project are they working on? They're working on the gospel. Right? The good news that the creator God of the universe has entered into his creation and he's come as King Jesus and he's established his reign on earth and he's called together a holy people reserved for God's use. So Paul is a servant of Jesus Christ. The Philippians, they're God's holy people. They're in on the mission. They share this mission together and they're working on this together and their mission together, their partnership binds them together. And Paul keeps talking about this relationship. Right? Go to verse seven. <clears throat> it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. 
And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul says, look, the way I feel about you, right? Every time I think of you, I thank God. Every time I pray for you, I feel this joy. The way I feel about you, it's right. The Greek word is dikaios. It means it's, it's appropriate. It's the right thing to do. It's the th- way it should be. Why? Why, should, why is it right for me to feel this way? Why? Because I have you in my heart. I have this deep concern and affection and care and love for you. And Paul really wants the Philippians to know that. He really wants them to know how he feels about them because we see it right here in verse 8, right? God can testify. So now the MIV translation for, for verse 8, next slide, um, has God can, trans- God can testify. I, I'm not happy about that translation uh, the, because the Greek is literally, for God is my witness. And you will see actually quite a few English translations go with that, that, that version instead. Paul is basically saying, God is my witness. I swear to God, I long for you. You need to know this, okay? I swear to God, I long for you. I desire your presence. I miss you so much. I miss you so much. And where does that all, all that affection and longing is coming from? It comes from the affection of Jesus Christ. The Greek word for affection is splanchno. It refers to the guts, the intestines. The entrails. Sounds kind of gross, right? <laughs> in the, I love you with all my guts. In, 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 English, in English, we use the word heart, and maybe sometimes gut. I feel it in my gut. We say things like that, right? Well, for first century Greek speakers, the gut, the entrails, the intestines are the source of deep passion, deep affection, deep love. That's where it comes from. And so what Paul is saying is, look, I have all this longing and care for you because they come from the splanchnon of Jesus Christ. Wait, how is that? Jesus Christ? Yeah. You see, what Paul is saying is, look, I'm in Christ. You're in Christ. Jesus Christ loves you. And that love for you is at work in me. And it's creating affection and longing for you. My love for you is produced by the love of Jesus Christ. Okay, let me just pause here for a sec. Because um, I think we need to talk about something. Anybody feeling a little weird about this passage? No? I don't know. A little awkward? Because, okay, I just got to tell you, Paul uses some expressions of relationship and intimacy that we really only reserve for romantic relationships or like close family members, right? I mean, if you look at, if you look at this passage, it says, it says, I have you in my heart, right? I would be very comfortable saying that to my wife, Serena, and my girls. Anybody else? Uh, right? I mean, okay, I, maybe some of you like, this is not a big deal, but Okay, it's a little weird for me. Like, if I were to say to Pastor Matt, okay, Pastor Matt, wherever you're, you are, whatever sites and venue you are, people around him watch him, okay? Because he's going to squirm. Okay, if I were to say to Pastor Matt, hey, you know, in an entirely earnest kind of way, not, not joking at all, i say, hey, Matt, I have you in my heart. Is he, is he squirming? 
Okay, feels weird, right? I would feel weird. He's feeling weird right now. Um, or, or, or you know, if somebody were to like move away, a friend to move away, would you write in an email, God is my witness how I long for you? <laughs> you wouldn't say that, right? Well, maybe some of you would. Some of you are like, Charles, it's not a big deal. But okay, for some of us, you know exactly what I'm talking about. This kind of expression of intense intimacy and affection feels kind of weird for us. And I think for some of us, really hard, especially for men in our culture, we're not really good at this. We don't really know how to do this. And it's uncomfortable to do it, to express affection, especially to another man. I mean, okay, now it is true in our culture, you, it is okay for one guy to say to another guy, I love you if you add a word at the end. You don't know the word, right? Okay, I want to do a little audience, audience participation, okay? I'm gonna try it again. I'm gonna ask you to help me, okay? So I say to Matt, hey Matt, I just wanna tell you, I love you. I heard something different from man. <laughs> I heard something from okay, I love you man, all right? That's how you do it in our culture. I love you man, I love you man, plus a little no, tap tap, okay. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so here's the problem, okay? Here's the first observation. Paul is way more comfortable expressing intense, intimate affection than we are in our culture. There's no getting around it, which is why this passage feels a little weird. It feels a little off-putting. It's like we, we focus on the verses that, that, that's not focused on the relationship. We focus on the other parts because all this intense emotion is making us uncomfortable. So I just want to put that out there and make that clear, that there's a cultural gap here. But I want to take us past it to get to something way more important. And that is this. Paul says, our relationship, you're the Philippians, our relationship, this, in, this in intimate, committed, affectionate, loving relationship is founded on the work of Jesus Christ. Right? I am his servant called by Jesus. You are his holy people. We're all united in Jesus. And, and we're bound together by this mission to establish God's kingdom in this world. Jesus loves you, and his deep affection for you is at work in me. His deep affection for you is at work in me so that I experience longing. I experience love and care and compassion for you. In other words, God is loving you through me, Paul says, and he doesn't say the next part, but it's implied, God is loving me through you. Do you understand that? Because this is huge. Because if we get this, this fundamentally transforms how we understand relationships in a church. You see, here's the problem with us, American evangelicals, American church people. We are people who have really much bought into the cultural value of individualism. Which means when it comes to following Jesus, it's me and Jesus. Right? It's about me and Jesus. So what does the church do? What is the function of a church? Well, the church, well, teach me some Bible so I can follow Jesus better. Play me some cool songs. Get me excited so I can worship Jesus better. But the church, the community, optional. Take it or leave it. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the church is your spiritual family. It is the place where you're tied more intimately than your own family by blood. Why? Because you're joined together with the people here in a spiritual union with Christ in a way that you are not with your family. 
And because we're joined together by our common mission, and because we're spiritually united, we are God's conduit to love one another. God loves you through me, and God loves me through you. That's how the church is supposed to work. So, second big idea. Deep emotional bonds within the church family should be the norm. Now, I know many of us don't experience this, and there are many reasons for that. But let me start with this. This is an expectation and a challenge. We should expect this to happen, and we should be challenged to deepen relationships with people in our church family. Now, what does it look like? <laughs> this entire series is about deepening relationship with God and with other people. So we're going to talk about this a lot. So that's coming up in the series. But the next thing that Paul talks about is how this God's holy people, like we're going to have deep relationship, and we're going to talk about how we love one another and how it's different from the love of this culture. So let's go to uh, the next verse, verse 9. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul says, I've been praying for you. He's, he's been saying, I pray for you, I pray for you. So now he actually tells the Philippians what he prays about. And what he says is, I pray that your love may abound. The Greek word there means to overflow, to have way too much of, like just lots, lots of love. So God, Paul's saying, more love. That's a good prayer, Paul. More love. What does that even mean? What does that mean? Right? I mean, here's the problem with our culture is that we use the word love in all kinds of different ways. Right? So, you know, I love my wife. I love my girls. I love apple fritters. Mm, okay, really bad for me. Okay, I'm diabetic. Okay, TMI. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but my wife, my girls, apple fritters. Those three sentences, I'm using the word love differently in all three, okay? And that's the problem with our culture. We use the word love in all kinds of different ways, and we never clarify, so there's all kinds of confusion. So let's do some clarification. Dallas Willard gets us off with a good start, um, off to a good start. He says, love means will to good, willing the benefit of what or who is loved. We, we, we may say we love chocolate cake, but we don't. Rather, we want to eat it. That is desire, not love. In our culture, we have a great problem distinguishing between love and desire, but it is essential that we do so. Um, I think this is a helpful distinction, so let's, let's get started, okay? So, so I would say there is a basic level to love, and level one love, love is desire, or love as what you make me feel, okay? I love something, that something satisfies me, right? That something makes me happy. Like an apple fritter. An apple fritter makes me happy. Now, I do not will what is good for the apple fritter. <laughs> Indeed, the apple fritter does not survive my love. <laughs> but that's love as desire, love as what it makes me feel. Now, in our culture, romantic love is frequently described as love as desire or love as what you make me feel. Uh, so in that movie, uh, Jerry Maguire, um, Jerry Maguire, toward the end of the movie now, Jerry Maguire goes to his estranged wife. They're, they are separated, right? And then we get to that climatic scene, and, and, and Jerry Maguire says, I love you, 
And then those of you who know the movie, say it with me, all right? You complete me. Yeah, yeah. That's that, that famous, okay, there's another famous line after that that says, you have me a hello, right? You guys know that. Okay, you complete me. Think about that. What is that? Right? It's, it's you satisfy me. You make me feel a certain way. This is the ultimate expression of love as desire. All right? No, no, no. I want to be clear. I'm not putting down desire. You have to understand that. I'm not putting down desire. Because I think there is actually space for desire and for affection within a healthy, loving relationship. I mean, look at what we've been reading so far in, in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's like, I have you in my heart. God is my witness, how I long for you. Now, without a doubt, Paul wants what's good for the Philippians. But there's also the other element where he is fulfilled by the, 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 the affection that is returned, that he receives from the Philippians. Without a doubt, because a healthy relationship, a healthy love relationship is a two-way street. Desire, affection, they are a significant part of a human relationship because it images a relational God. So often in churches, you hear that love is about wanting what's good for the other person and not wanting anything back. Right? We get this kind of love that's kind of bloodless. It's like, it's all for you. And we teach that, we say that that's what love is about because we think that's what God is about. We think that God's here for us, but he doesn't need anything from us. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God loves us and he wants us to love him back. And when his people don't love him back, he gets upset. Don't believe me? Read the Old Testament. <laughs> so, I, I don't want to put down desire. Okay, that's level one. But I, I, I do want to get to level two, and I want to borrow Willard's language. Willard's level two is will to good, or, or willing the, the benefit of the person that is loved. Right? So this is, and this is what Paul is talking about in verse nine. Right? He, he says, uh, you know, I want your love to abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Okay, wait, Paul, wait, you need knowledge and insight to love? Yes. Why? If you're seeking what is good for the other person. If you seek what is good for the other person, then you need to know what is good for the other person, which means you need knowledge. You need insight. Willing the good by itself is not good enough. When Serena and I were dating decades ago, um, you know, we're celebrating the anniversary of some sort, and I, I love Serena, and I wanted to give her a really good evening, a really fun evening, just like have her really have a great time. I just want what's good for her. So uh, I decided to plan this evening where, where we have this dinner at this restaurant in San Francisco, and then there's a theater nearby, and I, and I got a show to, that, to the theater, right? So we're going to go see that. But what I did was I, I decided to make that a surprise. So the plan was this, we're going to have dinner together, then we're going to go for a walk, and we're going to walk by the theater, and I just pull out the two tickets, and we're going to walk right in. And she's going to be like, whoa, this is so cool, so amazing, she'll be so surprised, you'll have a great time, that's the plan. So we, have, we got done with dinner, I said, hey, Serena, want to go for a walk? And she says, sure. So we start walking toward the theater, and there's kind of a crowd over there in front of the theater, right? And, 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 and I said, well, hey, let's keep walking over there. And she said, no, I don't want to. <laughs> I said, look, it's kind of fun. Let's go over and see what's going on. She says, I don't want to get in that crowd, Charles. So there we were, 
standing on the streets of San Francisco, a cold breeze was beginning to blow, and, and I was trying to get her to move, and she won't budge. And, and this vision of this really fun, amazing surprise was fading away. Finally, I pulled out the ticket that showed it to her. She said, oh. <laughs> she felt stupid. I felt stupid. We went to see the show. <laughs> the show was Penn and Teller. I guess I should have told her. Uh, so that night was the beginning of my learning that Serena doesn't like surprises. She likes to know what's going to come ahead of time, and she enjoys the anticipation. I didn't know that. I needed to know that. I willed what's good for her, but I did not know. I need to gain knowledge. I need to gain insight. So, so let, me, let me tweak really quickly the, the, this level here. The second level is will to good without knowledge. That's me on that awkward date with Serena, right? And the thing is, we do this all the time. We frequently act out of best intentions. We, we want what's good for the other person, but we don't know what's good. So we end up causing more problems. There's a famous book called When Loving Hurts. It's a, it's a book about how not, how not to help developing countries, right? All these good intention people coming in and creating, creating disasters. Without knowledge, without insight, love hurts. Which means there is level three. Love, level three of love is willing what is beneficial for the person loved, but with this idea of growing in knowledge and insight. Which means you have to become a learner. You have to become humble. You have to listen. You have to ask questions. There's got to be patience because people are complicated. Situations are complicated. Simple answers rarely work. What works for you doesn't work for other people. So to love well requires a lot of patience. Requires putting a lot of hard work into thinking and growing in knowledge and insight. It is hard work to love well. That's level three. There is one more level. There's one more level. Paul says in, in this prayer that I pray for your love to increase and in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best, so that you may know what is best for the person you love. Whoa, anybody? Having like, whoa, Charles, what are you saying? Like, wait, 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 how do you know what's best? Like, who decides what's best? I don't want somebody who says they love me to tell me what's best for me. I don't want that. No, 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 I decide what is best. I mean, I mean, love really is you accept and respect my decisions for myself, what is best. Anybody resonating with that? Yeah, that sounds really, that sounds right, right? I, I totally get that. That sounds really right. That's, that sounds really resonant. And I've felt that many times in my life, especially talking to my parents, okay? <laughs> totally felt that. I get it. And the reason we feel so strongly about that is because this idea that I know what's best for me is thoroughly rooted in our culture. Our culture is an individualistic culture, which means I decide what's good for me. You don't. This is bedrock value of our culture. But I feel like it's my duty just to mention that this is where the Bible utterly contradicts the culture. 
flat out contradicted. The Bible says we humans, it's not our job to decide what is best. We don't know what is best. And when we try, we make a mess of things. The Bible says we human beings, we're called to be God's children, to image God, which means the best thing for our lives is that we become like Jesus. We gain his character, we gain his values, we gain his posture, we gain his way of seeing the world. That's best for a human being. Look, look what Paul says. He says, he's, he prays to the Philippians. He says that you may be what? Pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul wants for the Philippians. This is the best thing I have for you. Become Christ-like. Become like God. Reveal who God is. That's the person you should be. It is the ultimate calling. Now, here's the problem. I'm guessing most Christ followers don't really believe this. Deep down. We don't believe this is best for us. It certainly doesn't motivate us. Right? This is why so many Christ followers, we see following Jesus as something that we should get rewarded for, right? Like, like becoming more like Jesus is a religious obligation that we should be compensated for. Having some sins forgiven, maybe have some prayers answered, maybe nicer real estate in heaven. We don't really believe this, but that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I don't have the time to get into this more, but we're going to come back to this. Okay, we are absolutely going to come back to this in this series. This idea that, that living out God's character is the greatest life possible for us. We have to come back to this because this is a foundational assumption in this letter to the Philippians. We will see it again and again. So we will come back. Okay, I promise. But there is level four love. Love is I will what is good for you. And I adopt a posture as a learner to, to gain wisdom and discernment. And I, in that process, I come to realize that what's best for you is for you to image Jesus. So I figure out what is the best way to help you in a way that you will accept so you will move toward what is best. This is how Jesus loves. This is how the Holy Spirit loves. This is how we're called to love. All right. Um, what do we do with this? What's our next step? Uh, first thing, we need to understand this. Okay? We need to understand this four levels of love because the culture tells us a lot of things, right? And, we, and the, love, the concept of love is very confusing. And so we need to be clear about what this is. Okay? So first thing, understand this. Step two, in a minute, I'm going to give you like 15, 20 seconds to do some self-assessment. As you're looking at these levels of love, as you're loving your family, your, your friends, um, people in this church, in this church family, where are you right now? How are you doing? Okay. Assessment. Now, the next step is to how to move and grow in this area. That's a big topic. We'll save it for another sermon. But here's the thing I want for us to take on. I'm guessing that most of you know some of the lyrics from the song of All You Need Is Love or Addicted to Love or, or I Will Always Love You. You know some of those lyrics, right? It's in your head because the culture is very good 
at creating these things that inculcate their values in us all day long. We need counter-programming, folks. Okay, we need to have the word of God inculcated in us so we can understand what true love is. So the challenge for this series, memorize this prayer. Okay, memorize this prayer. Now, we're going to be doing this throughout the series. So today, I want you to, I want to give you some time right now, okay? And look at this, read this over, and have a time of meditation. Think through how you're loving the people around you. And then in a bit of time, I'm going to then close this off in prayer. And I will pray this prayer over you. So right now, go ahead and have the time of meditation. my prayer for you. Blackhawk, Christ followers here at this church, God's holy people, called, reserved for God's use, for his mission, for his gospel here in Madison, here in Dane County. This is my prayer for you. That your love may abound. Your love would increase. It would overflow. And this increasing love would go beyond desire, would go beyond affection, and that you would learn, you would gain the posture of being a learner. So you start seeking knowledge and seeking insight because you want to love better, because you want to see what's good for the person you love. And in this process of learning, in this process of growing in insight and wisdom, I pray that you will gain the conviction that the best possible life for you and the people you love is that they become like Jesus, that they become pure and blameless, that they are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And I pray that this church, this community, we will learn to love this way. The glory and praise of God. And all God's people said, Amen.